Hey, everybody. Welcome to AM Live. Thank you for joining me. Hope your weekend is going well. Normally, uh, when we do these shows, we usually talk start out with the Ukraine war because that is the you know dominant issue in the world right now. But this week, I wanted to shift gears a little bit by talking about the story that used to dominate U.S. politics for many years and has a major role in this current crisis in Ukraine, a connection that is not widely made, but I, that I think is very, very clear when you look at the evidence. And that is the uh, ongoing trial right now of Michael Sussman, who was an attorney for Hillary Clinton. And this is the first major trial to take place of the perpetrators of Russiagate. Uh, one of the biggest and most consequential political scams, I think, in history, where essentially the Clinton camp cooked up this idea that uh, Trump was in cahoots with Russia, got the FBI to investigate it. The FBI overlooked all this countervailing evidence to basically do the bidding of the Clinton campaign. And the result was a sweeping investigation where even though the FBI was told uh, they were warned as early as July 2016, before their investigation even began, they were warned by John Brennan, uh, who said that we've picked up chatter from Russia, that Hillary Clinton and her campaign have cooked up a plot to basically frame Russia, uh, to basically frame Trump of having illicit ties to Russia as, as, as a bid, at, as part of an effort to distract the public from her misuse of her private email server. So even though the FBI got that warning, even though the FBI still investigated all this and found no evidence, they still kept this scam going for many, many years, basically because they saw Trump as an erratic president who was not a member of the club. He was saying things that did not go down well inside the national security state, including that he wanted to get along with Russia and wanted to criticize NATO. And so the result of that was this all-consuming scandal as a member of the left, I thought it was a disaster for the left for many reasons, including what could be a bigger gift to Trump than to have an opposition that is, instead of being focused on his policies, is focused on a deranged conspiracy theory that he's a Russian asset and the false hope that Robert Mueller will prove it and bring him down. So it boxed Trump in also on foreign policy so that diplomacy with Russia was impossible. And whatever he intended when he came in, when he talked about cooperating with Russia, you can say for sure that it was successfully thwarted, where he was essentially to prove to the media and Congress that he wasn't a Putin agent. He was incentivized to do reckless things uh, that his neocon advisors were proposing, like sending weapons to Ukraine and pulling out of arms control treaties, all of which escalated tensions with Russia. So right now in Washington, Michael Sussman, who's an attorney for Hillary Clinton's campaign is being is on trial and he's accused. It's a very narrow charge. He's, he's accused of lying to the FBI when he went to them with uh, one aspect of the Trump Russia conspiracy scam, a very small aspect, basically claiming that data between purportedly between a Trump organization server and a Russian bank might be evidence of some sort of illicit communications channel between them. Now, it looks like this supposed data was actually fabricated in a deliberate effort to frame Trump, which was what Russiagate essentially was. But regardless, Sussman is accused of lying to the FBI when he told them that he was not there on behalf of Clinton or anywhere else, but was just there as a concerned private citizen. And there are text messages and witness testimony that shows that that's a lie, that actually when Sussman went into the FBI, 
he presented himself as just being a kind of a concerned citizen, not doing the bidding of the Clinton campaign, whom in real life he was actually billing for his time. So it's a narrow charge because it's only it's a it's one charge for one small sliver of the Trump Russia conspiracy theory. But it's important because it's the first time anyone's being held criminally accountable. And one of the revelations that came out this week, it, it's been reported before, but this just confirmed it under oath, where Robert, uh, Robbie Mook, who was Clinton's campaign manager, confirmed that Hillary Clinton personally approved a proposal to bring these Alpha Bank allegations to the media. And what that essentially means is that the this Alpha Bank allegation, which is one of many deranged, deranged Trump-Russia conspiracy theories cooked up at the Clinton campaign, along with the Steele dossier, it was approved from the top that Hillary Clinton herself approved of bringing these allegations to the media. And once they did, Hillary Clinton tweeted it out, saying that Trump needs to answer for these uh, contacts between his organization and a Russian bank, hiding the fact that it actually was the Clinton camp that cooked all of this up behind the scenes. So this is going on in Washington. Of course, it's not getting nearly the attention that any development in the Mueller investigation got. In the Mueller investigation, if there was some email or some hearing, it was like a major news. You know, Roger Stone's home getting raided at five in the morning by Robert Mueller's SWAT team that was covered live by CNN. Now, because someone's actually being held accountable for the scam that the media was uh, complicit in and certainly promoted to no end. Now, it's just not really a top story, except for on Fox News, which is covering it because, of course, there's a partisan interest there because this was Democrats doing it. And I guess the biggest takeaway I have from this is that this Durham investigation and this trial, it really is the only hope we have for any kind of accountability for this scandal because the media certainly is not going to deliver it. The media was so involved in promoting Russiagate and all of its underlying conspiracy theories that there just won't be a reckoning there. And Durham having subpoena power, having the power of a criminal investigator will be able to unearth revelations and facts that, that we otherwise wouldn't have. And it also, I think ha- there's a sl- I have a sliver of hope that it might actually impact a positive outcome on Ukraine as crazy as that sounds, because what Russiagate did was normalize a bipartisan neocon cold war consensus, wherein Diplomacy with Russia was a terrible thing and hawkishness toward Russia as embodied by Adam Schiff or John McCain, that that was the way to go. And if more revelations can come out from Durham that show what a scam this was and show the agenda at play, which was to, in part, box Trump in on Russia and prevent him from pursuing diplomacy, that might have a positive impact on the uh, proxy war in Ukraine, where, as we're speaking, Joe Biden has just signed $40 billion dollars. Uh, of new funding that was approved overwhelmingly by Congress, including the entire Congressional Progressive Caucus, which includes Bernie Sanders and the squad. And the fact that Bernie Sanders and the squad could go along with what is amounts to a gift to the military industrial complex, and that will only further escalate this war rather than uh, inject diplomacy into it, speaks to the power of Russiagate and how successful it was in enlisting even progressives in a neocon agenda in the name, of course, of fighting Trump. And by the way, the irony of that is that really the Ukraine proxy war, when you get past Trump's Twitter account and his off-the-cuff comments, the Ukraine proxy war is really is the result of Trump's own policies because whatever he said in the campaign trail about making nice with Russia, when he came into office, 
the people he listened to were not his own advisors who were with him on the campaign trail, but people like Lindsey Graham and John McCain, who wanted to escalate the proxy war in Russia and wanted to pull out of arms control treaties like the INF Treaty, which Trump did with John Bolton, his national security advisor, presiding over that. And those decisions, escalating the proxy war by sending in more weapons and pulling out of the INF Treaty, were huge factors in escalating the proxy war. So even members of the squad and Bernie and other progressives who think that by doing this, they're countering Trump's agenda, they're being misled there again, because actually what they're really doing is escalating an agenda that Trump very much pursued, no matter what his own personal preferences were. So that is my opening rant. And let's take some calls. And CR, you're up. Hi, Aaron. Thank you for taking my call. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? <clears throat> Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I just one one thing that kind of immediately popped in my head about this was how I honestly feel I have to admit that I was duped a little bit in the beginning, because when they told us, yeah, Rudy Giuliani from like this blind, like the guy blind or almost blind or something like that, something crazy. Dude, Rudy Giuliani found this laptop and it's got all this stuff on it. And you're like, uh, OK, whatever. Fuck that. That's stupid. I've heard enough. Rudy Giuliani, you know, BS for one day. So you just kind of, you know, it's like I almost didn't examine it at all at first. I just um, swatted it away like everybody else. And uh, um, it's just definitely something that I've learned going forward that just that we, we all need to do. It doesn't matter what political persuasion is. We just need to examine the information, even if it's coming from people that echo our beliefs and 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 uh, uh, people that were quote unquote on our side, you know, because uh, um, they, they, they can. They're, they, they can easily dupe us. I, I just I have to admit that that in the beginning, that really did kind of the way that it was rolled out. I just dismissed all of it. And as more revelations came out that, no, the Hunter Biden laptop is is true and all that stuff on there. And, you know, all, all these different aspects of Russiagate. It's I just I just I try. I'm trying now to have more empathy for my uh, um, for my fellow human being, realizing that and I have to admit, too, that this they're getting good at this in a certain way. Although a lot of it's very clownish. They <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, they are good. What's amazing about the Hunter Biden laptop so-called controversy is that it, it's the exact same playbook, two election cycles in a row. What is it? It's verified information showing corruption among the neoliberal elite of the Democratic Party. And how do the... Uh, how does the Clinton wing and the Biden camp respond? They just blame it on Russia. It's all Russian disinformation. Two elections in a row, you know, emails showing significant corruption on the part of the Democratic candidate, Clinton in 2016, Biden in 2020. And the response mm -hmm. is simply, this is all Russian propaganda. If you, if you read this, if you report on it, then you're doing Putin's bidding. And it worked. It totally worked. It was so, it was so successful in 2020. <laughs> that it got censored, that you literally couldn't share the New York Post reporting on it on Twitter and Facebook because they banned it. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the outlets refused to report on the, it's, it was unbelievable. So it's totally successful. And yeah, in this era where partisan politics runs everything, it's very difficult to, to break free of that because everyone is just, you know, if you see Rudy Giuliani, who's not a very pleasant person promoting it. Yeah. Like why it's very natural to not want to listen to it. And that's how uh, people were denied some really vital information. And, and, and the, yeah, they, that's kind of, kind of goes to the empathy thing that I'm really trying to focus on. I talked to some of my other family members the other day 
uh, 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 which one of them just laughed in my face when I, I tried to explain to them, like, no, the Azov Battalion is actually, they do embrace neo-Nazism. And they're like, oh, I can't believe you're falling for that, that Putin propaganda. And I just, I just had to breathe. And just rather than argue their point, I just try to tell them, I said, you know, well, just think about the fact that they're trying to divide us at every angle, no matter which side you're on, no matter whether you watch Fox News or MSNBC. You know, their, their agenda is primarily to divide so yes. that the, the powerful can make it out the back door with all the money and all the power. So I just I just I just looked at her and I said, just just, you know, you know me, you love me, you know me my whole life. Just just know that I'm not crazy. And then I'm just telling you to have a little bit of an open mind. And, and that seemed to kind of work a little bit better rather than try to just tell her that she was completely wrong, you know? Uh, and, and so I'm just trying to, again, you know, with this, uh, uh, um, you know, this whole, the whole Hillary Clinton thing and whatnot, a lot of some of these people that were like, well, of course I voted for Hillary Clinton over Trump. So you try to start telling them like, well, it was actually her and Sussman and blah, blah, blah. And the steel dossier. And all this stuff. It, they immediately, their eyes roll over and they just think like, what are you supporting Trump? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. I'm, I'm trying in my, I'm probably failing left and right, but I, I'm trying and I'm trying to encourage everybody I know to just give people just to let them kind of spout their talking lines for a sec and, and then just try to like approach it a little bit better. Like in, in a sense where you can have empathy for them being duped too. Cause then you got to admit we were duped by AOC. We were duped by Bernie. We were duped by a lot of these people that, you know, uh, uh, Pramila Jayapal, I thought she was a progressive and she's nothing, nothing of the sort. You know what I mean? So yeah, yeah. It's basically well, Nancy Pelosi 2.0. Sorry to like change yeah, subjects. No, 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 no. The same yeah. thing. What I what what I hope is that this vote, where the entire Congressional Progressive Caucus, including the squad, including Bernie, they vote for forty billion dollars more for the Ukraine proxy war. More than half of that goes to weapons companies. Yeah. I mean, I don't understand. I don't understand how did no one like how they could think that they could do that. And not face anger from their base. Now, maybe they're right because there hasn't been that much so far. And part of the problem is that like progressive media won't even challenge them on it. Yeah, yeah. But that's how normalized this sort of neocon project of Russiagate, which I really think it was, is, is ultimately neocon, was. Yeah. And that it's even like progressive candidates who normally, you know, say things against the military industrial complex turn around and vote for something that funds them and is very dangerous. I mean, like, Escalating a proxy war is very serious. Even the New York Times editorial board put out an ed- an, a uh, article this week that I couldn't believe was in the Times. And I really hope members of the squad read it because the Times, which normally supports U.S. militarism, was like, whoa, wait a second. This is getting, this is getting dangerous. And, like, w- and even said, like, Biden needs to make clear there are limits on our military support for Ukraine because this is getting crazy. So the, the New York Times ed- editorial board has a more progressive position than the congressional progressives. I've never seen that that happen before. That's how crazy things have gotten. Actually, I have a little bit of a theory, just a small one. But do you remember the uh, scenes that we saw when uh, um, I think it was on the the uh, the, the, the dome uh, vote where I believe AOC was going to vote one way or started to. And then uh, Nancy Pelosi got in her face and everybody saw her waving her arms. And then she cried and went back and changed her vote to present or something. Yep. Right. Yep. So, so, so here's my little weird, like kind of conspiracy theory on it is that they still have convinced themselves that they're playing some type of long game and that Nancy and Chuck and the rest of them. And I don't know this. I'm not, I can't say, I'm not just saying just my little conjecture that they are still telling them like, Hey, you guys are the future. We're, you know, we're getting old. We're about to retire. Just play the game a little bit longer. 
If you don't fuck with us, <laughs> we'll burn you down. We'll burn you the fuck down if you vote against our fucking Ukraine package. So go along and then you will be in control. And you can do But I, you know what I mean? Like, so that's what I, I really, I know it's a, it's a very cynical take, but you got to admit that you, we've seen how Nancy has slapped her down. She went in saying, like, I'm never going to vote for Nancy Pelosi running for the election. She got in there and then it's mama bear. Yeah. So, and then again, I'm going to vote against this, this stuff because I believe in Palestinian rights. Then Mama Bear comes in, swats her again. So yep. I have to believe that this is continuing on in the background because they just don't leverage any of their power. And I think that they think they're leveraging their power in a long run game. They think they're playing some fucking 40 chess when they don't realize that Nancy Pelosi and these rest of these old fucking fucks are playing 5D chess on her. <laughs> yeah, I think that's totally plausible. So thank you for that. Thanks for the call, Sierra. All right, Rodrigo. Hey, Aaron, can you hear me? Yes, hi. Uh, hey, uh, Aaron, uh, uh, I definitely enjoy your work. I think you're an amazing journalist. Uh, thank you for being very on top of this. Um, I had some quick questions. I, I saw you on the the Jimmy Dore show a couple months ago. Mm-hmm. I think you were you were talking about how I, I think you had submitted a, a FOIA request regarding uh, the CrowdStrike reports that where I think CrowdStrike concluded that I think Russia was behind the, the hacking of the DNC servers. Um, and I think the FBI used those reports to ultimately launch all this, this whole mess. I just wanted to ask if did anything come of that, uh, the FOIA request? Okay. So just explaining it for people who aren't familiar, this is again, another aspect where the Clinton campaign was at the heart of all the major allegations underpinning Russiagate. So they generated the collusion thing via Christopher Steele, their contractor, the idea that Trump and Russia were in a sprawling conspiracy. They also generated the Russian hacking allegation, the core allegation of of Russiagate, which really triggered Russiagate. And that was done via a Clinton campaign contractor called CrowdStrike. And CrowdStrike is a private firm that went into the DNC servers after the DNC uh, suspected that they were being hacked. And CrowdStrike said, yes, this was Russia. And immediately, Michael Sussman, the same guy who just got indicted for lying to the FBI, he was going to the FBI and saying, look, you need to come out publicly and say that this was Russia doing this. I've written about this, and I'll, I'll link to my article on it. And the FBI was saying, whoa, uh, well, you haven't given us any evidence yet. And, right. uh, and uh, they still did not produce evidence for at least a few weeks. It took a long time for CrowdStrike to produce reports. And even, even when CrowdStrike produced reports on its forensics of the server, Michael Sussman redacted them. So CrowdStrike did not even give the FBI a full picture. But for some reason, just as for some reason, the FBI relied on the Steele dossier and continued the collusion investigation when they knew there was nothing there. For some reason, the FBI just relied on CrowdStrike's forensics and didn't do their own forensics of the DNC server, which is just like it's like basically it's it's like me claiming that my house has been robbed. But instead of letting, instead of letting the police investigate it. I demand that they rely entirely on a private investigator hired by me and controlled by me. And the information is redacted by me. Okay. That's basically what that was. It's unbelievable. And so uh, I've submitted for many years now, uh, Freedom of Information Act requests, just trying to get those CrowdStrike reports because it's unbelievable that a private company's reports that had such a huge impact on this investigation and this country, because that allegation was, you know, if you recall, Hillary Clinton was saying that this was like Pearl Harbor. This was the biggest attack on the country 
Gerald Nadler said it was worse than Pearl Harbor, I think he said. So this is a huge thing. So, you know, the fact that the public can't see the reports of a private company, because we're not even talking about intelligence community information, which is classified. So this is not the NSA or the FBI. This is a private company that was used by the FBI. So why can't we see it? So I've tried to get those reports and I've been stonewalled. Same with, and, and other people have had the same experience as well. The only thing that the FBI gave me was literally a cover sheet showing the FBI receiving one of those CrowdCheck reports in the fall of 2016. That's it. One cover sheet for one report, when in reality, I know that there are at least three reports. So the FBI, to me, only acknowledged the existence of one of those reports and withheld all of it, <laughs> all of it. And so that's that's the update. I've, I've appealed. I've gone through the process. I've been speaking to a few lawyers because I, you know... Um, I'd like to sue because I think that that's the only chance I have to get it. But it's to go to get to that, you have to go through a long process and it's complicated. They make it very difficult to get information. But this information is so paramount. And I think that if I ever can get those reports released or someone else can, it would shed a huge light on how thin the evidentiary basis was for this major allegation that Russia was guilty of stealing those emails. Oh, yeah, and by uh, the way, and by the way, and of course, I forgot to mention. Why is the allegation now even more suspect, you know, on top of the fact that this was done by a Hillary Clinton contractor? CrowdStrike itself admitted under oath in December 2017 that it actually had no evidence that these alleged Russian hackers actually stole anything. And that was an admission made by Sean Henry, who's the CEO of CrowdStrike. He said that in December 2017. But we in the public didn't find that out until May 2020, nearly three years later. And, you know, a year after the Mueller investigation shut down. We only found that out because his testimony was finally declassified after Adam Schiff kept it buried for nearly three years. And that's when the testimony was declassified in May 2020. By the way, speaking of media, the New York Times, Washington Post has never reported Sean Henry's admission. It just won't acknowledge it. So you can repeat, you know, Clinton derived claims ad nauseum. Russia was guilty. This was the biggest attack on 9-11. But when someone, the person who generated the allegation says, oh, we had no evidence for it, you can't even acknowledge it. Right. Uh, yeah, I think that's a very important aspect of the uh, I, I guess I'm kind of uh, sad that I, I don't see John Durham in, investigating that aspect of like the whole uh, Russia hoax, uh, as far as I've seen. And um, I, I, I've tried to follow all this. It's kind of complicated. But in my opinion, I feel like it's worse than the uh, weapons of mass destruction, like the lies they told for that. Um, uh, one last one last question I had is uh, I read I read a Washington Washington Post article by David Barrett. He was kind of going over the the trial and he covered the Baker's testimony. And I wanted to ask. Uh, I think from Baker's perspective, he was saying that the FBI had no idea that Sussman had any conflicts of interest with Hillary Clinton's uh, campaign. Um, is that is that actually true? I guess I haven't seen. I feel like. Um, suspicious of that claim but i just want to hear your thoughts on that yeah no i think that claim is being made to sort of portray the fbi as an innocent victim that was duped by sussman but that's no i i don't actually buy that i think the fbi was totally complicit in taking these scam claims by the clinton campaign and trying to pretend that they were credible so i think that line is basically being used to sort of uh let the fbi off the hook which is you know a major problem with the durham investigation is that i don't think it's going to really go after intelligence officials, I think it's going to try to find scapegoats like Michael Sussman to make it seem as if the innocent intelligence community was duped. But I just don't, I don't buy that. And by the way, in terms of whether CrowdStrike is within Durham's purview, 
I've actually heard that it is from people who I trust and who have given me accurate information before about the German investigation. So I, I, I mean, I have no idea what he'll do. Maybe he won't touch it. Maybe it's too close for him, but I wouldn't rule it out. Gotcha. Uh, thank you, Aaron. Yeah, I think this reporting is very important. I think it's it led to a lot of like pushing uh, manufacturing consent for what's happening now with Russia. So I think it's a very important uh, part of the investigation. But anyway, thank you for your time. I appreciate all the inf- information you've given me. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Okay. Joshua. Uh, you're, you're pretty distorted, so let's see. How about now? Okay, that that's good. Yeah. All right. So I worked for CrowdStrike 2015-2016, so I feel like I'm being set up. Um, uh, anyway, uh, what do you want to ask about that? Because I don't lick anyone's boots. Oh, okay. I'm not going to lick yours either. <laughs> okay. Do you feel confident in CrowdStrike's conclusions that Russia was guilty of hacking and de- hacking the DNC and stealing those emails? No, you're not. Nope. Okay. Uh, and, uh, and why not? Uh, because after the fact, looking at it, it seems like it's just another power play by oligarchs to make money off of tech arms races. Okay. Do you want and to also, you know, they were bought by Google, right? Um, yeah. and Google also bought a neocon version of the same stuff. So this attribution is real shit, right? What did you uh, do for CrowdStrike? Business development. And were you around at all when this when this Russia stuff was happening? Um, I left. Uh, I believe it was around April of 2015, right before RSA. I okay. had personal family issues. Right. Anyway, right. I didn't. I mean, I didn't really call in to talk about that. I called to talk about Iran. Okay, sure. Because we just hit. Uh, well, like somebody hit somebody in Iran. I'm not saying who it was. Uh, but, uh, that seems like, you know, we seem to think we can operate in other people's sovereign nations and have no blowback. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. And so for people who don't know, an Iranian, uh, official, I think he's with the IRGC was assassinated today in, in Tehran. And the suspect is naturally Israel, similar to previous Israeli, Attacks in Iran. I, I think the assailants were on motorcycles. I think the assailants were on motorcycles, and this is, you know, one more assassination that's being blamed on Israel inside Iran. Um, I also believe that. Uh, I mean, these these things are allowed to happen in our country because it benefits uh, old men that are beyond their prime uh, and do not have the intellectual nor the leadership capabilities to get us where we need to go in this century or the next. Yeah, I agree with you. I totally agree. I totally agree. And um, it's the kind of violence that's totally normalized. So if Russia were to assassinate somebody, you know, especially a, a, a U.S. ally, I mean, that would be cause for, that would be, you know, a huge issue and it would be denounced and maybe even the U.S. would try to use military force in response. When Israel does it or when Israel bombs Syria, which it does pretty much every single week, it's just totally normal. And so it's so normal that sometimes the media doesn't even report it. So Israel bombing Syria, as they did this week, 
sometimes doesn't even get acknowledged because it's just, it's kind of like breathing air. It's just, it's just so normalized. I'm going to say one more thing and I'm going to drop off. Um, in regards to, I'm going to put this in air quotes, progressives being co-opted. Um, I think that that playbook has been played out for the last six years too. Um, and they are, I think that they are, they are, uh, enraptured with the potential path to power in the presidency. But if they don't get co-opted, they're like, well, I won't be able to get there without them. And it's like, you know what, if you want that office, you probably shouldn't have it. And that comes from indigenous perspectives. Like if you really like covet the office, you don't know what it's going to take to be effective in it. So I'm going to drop off now. You guys have a great rest of the call. Thanks, Joshua. Thank you. Thanks for calling. Okay. Matt, you're up. Hey, Aaron, can you hear me? Yes. Uh, how you doing? I know you're in the New York City area, so am I, and it's pretty warm here. Yeah, it's a hot one. It's a yeah. hot one. Uh, I wanted to get your take on a couple of things. I'll be quick, but um, I was wondering if you, I know you used to work for Democracy Now!, if you happened to catch, they did uh, an interview this week with, a uh, not a Ukrainian journalist, but a journalist who was actually in Ukraine, and um Especially would have an interesting take on it because so the journal his name is Billy Nesson. Uh, so with no judgment to him, uh, he does seem to kind of toe the U.S. Ukrainian the West line essentially on the conflict. But it much like that interview you gave last Friday with uh, the, another journalist uh, who used to be the Iraq uh, the Iraq War veteran. Uh, but I, I feel like in this interview the journalist says a lot more than he's intending to like in the democracy now interview I'm talking about, well, a, he admits it like just right up front that the, the Ukrainian government has extreme censorship on all journalism and it's almost impossible to get near the front line. He goes on to admit that the Azov battalion is the dominant fighting force or was the dominant fighting force in Mariupol. Uh, and then he actually admits like, and he's candid about it. Like, well, actually the, I can understand the censorship because there are a pretty significant portion of P of the civilian population here that is pro-Russian. And it's like, hmm. and, you know, to, to her credit, Amy Goodman, um, you know, she does push him on it. Like I, you know, I know you've had your critiques, but in this case, it, she did kind of, she w did seem somewhat astonished that he up, he openly admitted that. Uh, so yeah, I wanted your take on that. And, and I, I just have one more comment to make after this, but uh, I'll, I'll lead you to, what do you think about yeah. that? Do you, do you, have you seen a lot of that going on? Have you seen that particular interview? I didn't see the interview, so I, I can't uh, comment on it. All right. Well, I, yeah, I, I suggest people watch it. It's democracy now earlier this week, uh, the Billy Nesson interview. And he's literally like, like he's in a war zone. Like they had to cut the camera off at one point. Cause, um, there was a, an airstrike nearby, but I don't know the the guy just seems like totally. I mean, he he's a war reporter. I'll give him credit, but like he just seems totally not appropriately skeptical of the information that he's telling us. Right. Um, and he just kind of assumes good intentions of the uh, Ukrainian government. And the other thing I wanted to say was, so I I don't know if you caught New York Times today. Actually, uh, again, like to their credit, but like they they did this great expose today on on Haiti. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, some of it myself, but in it, they, they admit it, that they essentially admit that in 2004, the U S government essentially uh, overthrew the Haitian government. They, they took 
the president Aristide out of power. Um, yep. And they're essentially admitting it's a coup. But if you look at like at the time, the reporting was, uh, you know, Colin Powell's quoted as saying like, that's a totally baseless <laughs> uh, accusation. It's totally absurd. Yes. And then you see this dynamic that I've, I, I know you've talked about you've, and you and um, uh, your friend Ben Norton have been accused of just being cons- quote unquote conspiracy theorists for pointing to like the 2014 coup because, you know, we have this evidence of the phone call and like it's pretty damning evidence. And it's like we never know the coup is happening in real time. Like they always deny it. I'm sure if you talk to people in 1973 about the Chilean coup of, of uh, uh, Allende, I'm sure people were very skeptical and probably we'd be called conspiracy theorists back then if we said the U.S. did this coup. But now in like decades later, or in this case from the Haiti coup, it's like 20 years later, um, it's just accepted as fact. And it's like... The, yep. The, yep. So there's so much skepticism, like when you, like, I, I appreciate the skepticism, but it only works in one direction. You can make totally insane, baseless evidence claims about a Russian attempt to influence an election here. But when you have a phone call, a recorded phone call of U.S. officials talking about changing the government in Ukraine, we, no, you don't have enough sufficient evidence. We don't have, like, the documents to prove mm-hmm. it. It's like this skepticism that only goes in one direction. I don't know. Do you, do you see that dynamic playing out? Like we never know when the U- U.S. covert actions are happening in real time. Of course. And that's why you have to look at the available evidence and, and recognize that there are limits on what we know. I mean, for example, I never say that the CIA did the coup in Ukraine because I have no idea if the CIA played a role. But if I had to bet, <laughs> I'd, say, I'd say that they were heavily involved um, because they always are. And, and that's what they do. And the Victoria Newland phone call is a major piece of of evidence that the, the uh, at least a, a, of of U.S. involvement. And yes, Haiti. It was so obvious at the time that that was a coup. I went to Haiti right after the coup happened. It was in, the coup against RSD was February 2014, and I went there in December 2014, and I saw what life was like there. And yeah, it was a classic thing that the U.S. had installed a new government that was doing its bidding, that was you know listening to U.S. advisors when it comes to you know, uh, uh, crushing workers' rights. And, you know, as this article in the Times talks about, uh, a major factor for France and the U.S. was that Aristide, the elected president, he was demanding that that France pay reparations to Haiti for all the money they stole from Haiti going back to Haiti's freedom when, when Haiti became the first free country in the hemisphere in 1804 after a slave revolt. And France... Instead of you know accepting Haitians' self determination, forced Haiti essentially at gunpoint to pay France back mm-hmm. for the money that Fran- that France was losing as a result of it no longer con- controlling Haiti, and those payments continued up until the Second World War. So the Times estimates the you know am- amount of money that France stole from Haiti at billions of dollars, and Aristide back then was demanding that it be paid back. And actually, if I remember right, the the number that Aristide had was like $27 billion, he was saying, or that France should, should pay back. Well, the Times estimate says that it's actually in the hundreds of billions of dollars. So if anything, Aristide was giving the U, France and the U.S. a pretty good bargain. But of course, for the very act of demanding reparations, he had to be ousted. And this, this is the right. beauty of our system. You can carry, you can carry out these things. And you can lie through your teeth and say, no, we had nothing to do with this, Aristide, it's all his fault. But then eventually, look, the truth comes out. And, uh, you, see, and, you, and you know, like this French official who admits, who admits, says, yeah, that's what we did. But, you know, 
there's no consequences and now everyone's forgotten because this is now this is now 18 years later yeah and i'll make one closing comment on that when you the the skepticism goes so far in the other direction right but like imagine with the ukraine situation imagine you had russian officials talking about changing the government of mexico or something and like of course we would say that that's obviously a coup uh and then the last thing is new york times is just the king of reporting these big stories like two decades too late right like it's never like reported on when it's like actually actionable it's always like reporting these big stories like the syria airstrikes that killed thousands of civilians they report on it but yeah you reported on it four years too late meanwhile the, of course they report on russian alleged war crimes in real time and in great detail. So I think it's like this imperial stenography masquerading as like even handedness. Uh, but thank you, Aaron. I really appreciate all you do. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. Thanks for the call. Okay. And John L you are up. And John, if you're there, there's a microphone button in the bottom, right? You have to press to unmute yourself. And if not, you can try calling back, and we'll, we'll move on to the next caller, which is Anne. Hi. Um, I was just going to mention that New York Times editorial board piece, which was everybody should read. It's, it's really crazy how there's a, this little glimmer of hope when you, when you hear some of their arguments. Um, of course, they trash Putin, and that's quite disturbing. Um, but I was just going to mention one thing. So I'm trying to talk to people, liberal friends who just, you know, they're putting out um, yard signs for Ukraine. And I understand the humanitarian issue. So I was thinking about $40 billion and trying to figure out what is $40 billion? Because the 40 makes it sound like it's not that much, but it's a ridiculous amount of money um, per day. I don't know. I think I was trying to do the math. Maybe someone else can. It's, it's really a sum of money that would, you know, solve a lot of our problems here. So I think it's something to talk about um, with our liberal friends who are, you know, wearing sunflowers and everything. Because um, the war, I mean, we want the war to end. And hopefully the New York Times has something up its sleeve. I don't know. But um, any yeah. math are going to figure out yeah. the money. There was a article, I haven't read it yet, but the Times did put out an article a few days ago breaking down the $40 billion and how much that could buy on other things. And yeah, that's the argument to make. I mean, it's it's unbelievable that at this time in this country where prices are higher, I mean, people are struggling, that the Congress, including the squad and, and Bernie, of all people, could just you know ship out $40 billion dollars for the weapons industry, most for the we- most of uh, for the weapon, it's unbelievable, yeah. and they, and they don't even feel compelled to explain their vote. So Bernie was like before the invasion was warning about the dangers of the U.S. getting involved, and here is his first chance to to really shoot down the very U.S. involvement he was warning against. And he t- he turns around and supports it, and doesn't even issue a press statement explaining his vote. It's unbelievable, and it's um, I personally think it should be the Iraq vote moment for Bernie and the squad in the same way that voting for the Iraq war really tainted Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden, and John Kerry. I mean, this to me is just, yeah. I, I don't say just as shameful, but I'll say it's shameful and, and it's, and it should, and they should be questioned about it. And the yeah, fact that they haven't speaks to, you know, how badly our, you know, our especially media is after 
before this, before Ukraine, we every day we're seeing how hard it was to pass the legislation, you know, agenda, yep. and now that's forgotten. Um, yep. But I, a little interesting thing that I just heard today was that the rail workers in England and the UK might strike. Um, so that's sort of a bizarre. <laughs> yeah. uh, that won't happen here, but. Um, People just have to understand that this is costing them, and it's not just the get, you know the cost of gasoline, but our problems are getting worse here. Yes. Absolutely. Anyway, Absolutely. carry on. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Ann. Thanks for the call. Bye. Bye. All right, Andrew. Hey, Aaron. How are you? Hi. Good. Thanks. Good. Good. Uh, as I'm sure you're very well aware, there's still a big mainstream effort to downplay the Sussman trial and case in the Alpha Bank hoax uh, to say that, yeah, it was carelessness. They screwed up and didn't verify the information before they leaked it, but just a bit of carelessness, no big deal, nothing intentional. Um, There's actually a Washington Post article the other day kind of mocking the techno fog uh, blog post that speculated that it was intentionally fake data that they used to kind of launch the hoax. Um, oh, I'll definitely, I'll definitely have to read that because that's so it was, funny. That yeah, it was Philip Bump, I think, was the guy that wrote it. But okay. um, yeah, I'll definitely. Yeah, but, yeah. It, Go ahead. I was just curious, like, how do you respond to that in general? Uh, in your assessment, would you say that it's a provable fact that that data was faked, or is it just speculation that you would say is very likely? And, uh, well, this, your, the, this is the yeah. Well, this is the problem. It's so easy to come up with a fake allegation, right? You can make anything up. Like, for example, the entire Steele dossier. It's the easiest thing in the world. It's very hard to prove that it's false because, you know, um, it's hard to prove a negative. It just is. Now, I haven't looked at all the, you know, in the case of Alpha Bank, that would require going through all the technical data and being able to do that. But what I know is that um, one of the banks involved, um, Alpha Bank has filed a lawsuit accusing some of the people involved of faking the data. And just broadly, even if you don't know any of the underlying details of this case, given how much of Russiagate was fabricated, so the entire Steele dossier, all these yeah. other conspiracy theories, you know, Michael Cohen going to Prague and meeting with Russian hacker, meeting with, meeting with Russian hackers, I mean, all the countless stories, the bombshells that had to be retracted because they were the product of fraud. Given that, when you have a preponderance of, of fraud, then the onus is on the fraudsters to prove that they're actually being truthful for once. So by, you know, just like, you know, like as a baseline, every Russiagate allegation to me should be assumed to be false unless it can be proven otherwise. Why do we need to give the benefit of the doubt to the same people like Michael Sussman, who was funding the Steele dossier, you know? So it's on them to actually show that this wasn't fabricated. And um, somebody testified from the FBI during the trial that it, you know, and, and there was a document that they produced, you know, showing this. At the time, there was some internal, like some FBI officials who got the data from Sussman were looking at it. And one of the FBI officials at the time said, this looks like it was created by someone with mental issues. They used the term 5150, right? Which, which is a, whatever that term is to signify a, 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 like a mental health case. That was a term that they used. So it looked crazy to them. And that's because I think it was fabricated. So I can't prove for sure it was fabricated, but given the preponderance of fabrication that happened and given the interest that the Clinton campaign had in fabricating yet one more Trump-Russia tie, I have every reason to believe that it was fabricated and perhaps more evidence 
on that front will come out. But the the most like the most the most detailed technical analysis was done by a firm that was hired, I believe, by Alpha Bank, and they say that this points to this being fraudulent. And I've I linked to it in one of my articles on the topic, and I will if I can find it, I will put the link in the show notes in the, in the show notes to this episode. Yeah, that'd be great. Do you remember the name of the firm? I don't. I don't. I, I'm pretty sure. Whenever I wrote about the Alpha Bank allegations, I'm pretty sure I linked to it, and I will. I'll look for it after this episode. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Okay. Thanks for the call. All right, Lance. Hey, Aaron. <clears throat> yeah, thanks for taking the call. Great sure. to talk to you again. The call is I had two points, one about AOC. But so, you know, as far as like why the zealousness for like everything, you know, the war and all these like neoliberal things, but even on the further, you know, even progressive left in some cases. And I think it's this to, if, with a lot of things. The undercurrent of the 50s with the bikers, that was right wingish, if you will. But it was a, a, you know, it was a rebellion against, you know, the Korean War and World War II and all the crap before, like enough. You know, a lot of them were uh, Korean vets. Then you had, of course, the beatnik generation. You had the rock and roll itself, of course, jazz, you know. So there was an undercurrent of a lot of things rumbling under the surface. But the people that were the elites in the 50s that were the, you know, the normal people in the burg, which were happening, those college kids were all pretty much like rich kids who went to college. By the 60s, you had these young elites now were. The college educated ones that were the Berkeley and the free speech movement that, you know, that were, again, like the maybe the son, the, the younger sons and daughters of the people that did the, you know, uh, the stuff in the 50s. But there was a real zeal for liberal politics and LBJ and all that. But like Mao said, whether whatever revolution happens, and it wasn't a revolution in the 60s, it could start with the proletariat, maybe the, like the lowly bourgeoisie who don't have power, or uh, it could start with the academics. But eventually the elites have to get behind it, any movement. And that's what we had in the 60s. Even Nixon, who called himself a conservative, we actually had what we call Rockefeller Republicans. We had liberal Northeasterns, mostly uh, Republicans. So it wasn't unusual to have, you know, super conservative, unreconstructed racist on the Democratic side and liberals on the, in the Republican side. Nixon won that. He was, called himself a conservative. And of course, a lot of progressive stuff got done during his, you know, administration because of the fact he needed those elites. He couldn't do it all with it. You know, the Democrats, the Democrats still had the working class, you know, people. And then the elites that Nixon needed wanted liberal stuff. They wanted the EPA. They wanted civil rights. They wanted all this stuff. And that's why it happened. Now they don't want it. This is the second generation where everybody's grandparents came from the burbs. So these people now, the elites, they don't have any fervor for this lefty stuff. They're not working class. They're all the elites. And that's even more true now than it was then. And it was true then, even with the working class part of the coalition. You know, do you see, does that, does that make any sense? You see the point I'm making is that whether it's the war, whether it's for surveillance stuff or any of this stuff, these guys, elites all their life, there's no, you know, impetus for any kind of movement like there was in the 60s. And so they're just uh, going along to get along and they just don't care, you know, about any of this stuff. They don't care whether it's war or anything. None of this stuff ever affects them. Uh, that makes a ton of sense. I mean, it just in my, you know, you know, in recent years, just seeing how many people have embraced George W. Bush and Dick Cheney, who was like, they used to be the personification of evil. And now their views on foreign policy, that's the mainstream of the Democratic Party. And no one challenges it. Now, I mean, now even Bernie and the squad are basically endorsing a Cheney Bush foreign policy agenda. That's basically what they're doing. Um, and it's, uh, so yeah, I mean, it's what you're saying about how just uh, malleable elite culture is. I think that's, uh, yeah, that's right on. 
Yeah, and I, I could go, you know, counteract that with another point on that, but I'd love to just mention AOC briefly. You've got other callers, and it's not fair to try to, you know. Uh, and I, I, so, AOC. You know, Obama, if you go back, and I didn't know this right when he got elected. I thought it was more that he was too green. I didn't think it was all that. But you listen to Cornell West, who was one of his kind of, you know, second-tier advisors, and he was talking to him before he, when he was running. You know, and they both were uh, acolytes. You know, they, they loved Reverend Wright. People don't realize that's deliberately trying to be incendiary like Malcolm X talking about, you know, stuff or uh, what's his name there? Um, Eldridge Cleaver having a calm conversation with William F. Buckley about how it's his duty to kill all white people because they're my enemy. And it was a rhetorical construct. It wasn't a call to arms. So, I mean, uh, but uh, but with but with Obama, he, he was going to be post-civil rights. He was he was not that he was not hoping change. And I think from the time he got to be and was in Harvard, he got to be the president of the Harvard Review. Everybody said a black guy gets to be head of, you know, the, the president of the Harvard Review, Harvard Law Review. No, he's he's key presidential material. People knew that then. Then he runs for office. He does some just stuff to get some street cred by being a community organizer in Chicago, just like John Kerry with his Super 8 camera. And anti-war was the thing. And it was all left wing. And he took his camera and then he did the Winter Soldier stuff, which I appreciate. You see, but then as uh, like a political weather vane that he was, once he moved towards the, he was thinking about go, running for president, starting with senator when he was in Vietnam with a Super 8 movie camera. Okay. So that was all <laughs> yeah. they were thinking about, like somebody else was talking about, is that if he coveted. Okay. And so here it is with AOC. I think, and if there was any, uh, two quick points, I think she did the same thing. I think she said, yeah, this will work out good. And I used to do security herself. And she had some connections to different people that were uh, kind of mainstream them anyway. But, and then she got in there, didn't, started calling her mama bear and i think that if there was any doubt and i'll finish with this i have a feeling that nancy pelosi said i want to have a little one-on-one with you a little heart to heart got out her fancy ice cream and you know i don't know if that goes with beer or out of her fridge or whatever one because they don't go good together maybe they had a few beers and i guarantee if i would love to be a fly on the wall i guarantee nancy pelosi said hey i'm italian you're a you're a young up and coming just like i was from baltimore uh, a hispanic and i'll tell you hard scrabble baltimore are you kidding me and then san francisco two of the dirtiest cities forget about chicago and new york which we all look at Baltimore and San Francisco are some of the most corrupt. Are you kidding me? When I will visit San Francisco, the mob presence was very blatant. The Lance, I got you. And so, I got it. Yeah. Okay. So what I'm saying is, I think Nancy Pelosi said, "I, you, you could be me in 20, 30 years," and gave her a big picture of you could be the speaker someday if you play by the rules and play ball, and I'll take you under my wing and do whatever I tell you. And I think that's how it went down. I think that's. I think know. that's. I think that's quite plausible. I think that is given how AOC is. Uh, conducted herself while in office, I think it's totally fair to speculate that. So, Lance, thank you for the call. I appreciate it. John L. And John, to uh, speak, you just have to hit the microphone button in the bottom right of your screen. There you go. Hi, I'm, I'm, I'm old, old and very stoned, so I have a question for you, if you care to uh, uh, indulge. Yeah. I don't know that this is your usual area. But I would just like your take as a journalist on, uh, I saw a, a notification, don't know the source, but that 50% of people that microdose psychedelics in the United States started during the pandemic. Any comments about that or any uh, details that come to mind that might add to that context? I don't really have much to offer you there. I mean, personally, from my experience with microdosing, I, I think it's a positive thing. And so if more people are doing it, you know, I think uh, that sounds like a positive development to me. 
Um, but I, uh, as to what that signifies about the culture, it's not, you know, my, uh, that's just not quite my thing. I mean, what do you, I certainly don't think that microdosing so far is going to lead to, uh, anyone changing the mind of, of current policy yeah. that this war should stop and peace talks should be supported. It's yeah. not a very complex position. Oh yeah. No, in terms of inducing that kind of change, no, but in terms of, um, you know, during the pandemic, especially all the hardship that resulted from people losing their jobs and being, and being shut off from each other. I think, if people are mi- microdosing, maybe in one's personal life, that might be beneficial. But yeah, in terms of will this influence consciousness to the point where people rise up to stop the Ukraine proxy war? No, I don't think so. Yep. Yeah. Although I, I support it. I microdose myself. I think it's uh, positive. I would hope. I would hope it would would maybe open the eyes of younger people that something needs to be done with this um, runaway government. Yeah. Well, anyway, I, yeah, I, don't, I don't want to use this as a, a pretext for me <laughs> spreading my opinion. I just wanted to see what you had to say. So I, I, I really do appreciate your response that was uh, simple, direct, and it's a, a standard that you seem to have very strong ethical positions. Well, thank on. you. I appreciate that. And, you know, so, I, I don't want to uh, give people advice. I mean, for some people, things like microdosing work well, and for some people, they don't. You know, so everyone's got to make their own decision. But overall, just broadly, I think it's a it speaks positively on society if it's being at least if people are trying it out and seeing if it helps them at all. For me, in my case, it helped me with anxiety and things like that, and even with it uh, focus. Uh, I, I don't microdose now, but when I did briefly, I, I found it helpful, and so that's all I can really say about it. So, John, thank you. And we'll go to the next caller, Chris. What's up, Aaron? Happy Sunday to you, brother. To you uh, as well. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we had snow two days ago here in Denver. It's been a while. Wow. Days. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> late, late spring snows, but it's pretty. Um, hey, Last time I called in, I was kind of on some personal drama shit, and I respect you for standing above the prey, prey on that stuff. And uh, thanks for taking my call, and and, uh, and sorry for posing the questions I did last time. Um, um, I saw you last week on Jimmy's show. Well done. Another great appearance. Uh, that's a really interesting question, John, just asked about microdosing and I uh, legalized mushrooms here in in Denver, and I uh, never been one super big on on um, on uh, uh, wow, my brain's just completely farting on psychedelics. But I do love microdosing, and I think it's uh, I think it's really interesting. Um, anyway, um, I just wanted to ask you what you thought about uh about man i am completely brain farting i ate a gummy last night <laughs> and I have not been, that's I have all right, not been that's all right. Today. 
sorry. It's all right. We, we've all been there. No next time, actually, Aaron. I Sounds I good. Like Chris, good to hear from you. Thanks for calling. Oh, no worries. Yeah. No worries. Okay. Have a good day. Thanks, Aaron. Bye. Decent. Bye. Okay, <laughs> Sam. How you doing, Aaron? How's your Sunday going? Uh, it's good. It's good. How are you? Uh, I'm enjoying the nice weather before the thunderstorm here on the East Coast. Uh, yeah. Yep. Yep. So, Aaron, you know, I mean, okay, Let, let's let's talk some facts here. I mean, okay, sure, we have now evidence that there's these fake leaks, but I mean, when are you going to just have to admit the truth that Russia, that Russia and Trump are working together? Okay, sure, they said that there were 18 agencies that pr- proved it, and then you know, when you windle it down, it became 10, nine, and then it came to three. You know, and sure, you know, Trump escalated with russia and removed treaties and armed ukraine but aaron you just you got to face the facts that he he worked with russia i mean if you don't blindly trust our intelligence service aaron are you being a good journalist be honest now (laughs) i mean this is where it comes down to you're just you're not being a true journalist by not blindly believing the cia i mean i can't help you with that aaron yeah 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 (laughs) well unfortunately there are people who actually believe that well, I mean, what's going to be great about it is everyone who was wrong about it will be fired, obviously, because <laughs> yeah. it's not like our media promotes the people who got things wrong, like the Iraq war and put them on mainstream outlets and promote them upward for coins like Axis of Evil. I mean, we, we live in a meritocracy, Aaron. I mean, people will move up based on being factual, not being completely wrong and following the CIA and NSA and all these, uh, these leaks. I mean, when are you going to, when are you going to step up, Aaron? When are you going to become a proper journalist, sir? Well, it hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened yet. So maybe, uh, you know. <laughs> oh, man, this, I just, I always love when, and, and it's what, what I like is, of course, corporate media is going to be what corporate media is. Just blindly spelling. But what I can't admit, uh, get over is the very people on the left who, who admitted, you know, the CIA is not somebody we should trust. We have to challenge these things. Just so blindly accepted Russiagate, and even with all of this, cannot, in all honesty and in good conscience, say, hey, I was wrong. I admit it. We were dead wrong. We got hooked onto this thing. And you don't see it. You just see them pretending it never happened. No. Uh, hard sorry, go ahead. People have a really hard time admitting that they're wrong. That's what it comes down to. People have a really hard time. It's yeah. um, it shouldn't be that way. There's, I mean, it happens. It happens in all industries, but there's something about media where people are just so. I don't know what it is. They just don't want to admit getting it wrong, and so the result is being even more dishonest. And they just keep doubling down. I mean, we've seen that with RussiaGate for, for for like five years now. It keeps going, and uh, I don't know what it will take. You know, as I've said before, with Russiagate, there's there is no rock bottom. It just doesn't exist. So no. people just keep people just keep falling. I mean, listen, I'm just happy there's journalists like you out there who people can come to rely on for actually doing basic journalism and not just going, oh, the CIA said so. So, you know, we know it's a fact. And it's like, do you ever read anything the CIA has done in in since their creation and yeah. looked at it and said that's an agency I want to trust? Anyway, I don't want to have too much time, man. Uh, I'll talk to you tomorrow. I'm looking forward to another episode of Useful Idiot. So enjoy the rest of your Sunday, brother. Thank you, Sam. You too. You too. Okay. Heidi. Sam is my man. Oh, my goodness. I want to have a drink with that guy. Anyway, <laughs> um, my, my question is, and may, you may not want to do this because I understand that you're 
you are very good about uh, staying, sticking with the facts uh, and not doing too much speculation. But uh, my question is, where do you see this heading? I, I, I mean, like, I don't want to be uh, on a, tr- uh, how can I put this? I, I, I don't want to uh, be on a, um, a rally train to say, like, uh, lock her up, Hillary Clinton, that kind of thing. But these, some corruption has to be finally, you know, like held to account. So where do you think that needs to, I don't know. You tell me. You see what I'm saying? So you mean in the Russia investigation? Accountability for the Russia investigation? No, anything. Any, uh, specifically, I guess that is your, your title, Michael Sussman, right? But um, yeah, okay. Yeah, let's go with that. Uh, with the Russiagate... Um, you know, like any of these journalists and any of these um, uh, supposed like uh, intelligence uh, operatives, like when are we actually going to hold some people accountable? That's what I'm getting at. Yeah, that's a great question. I don't think it will happen, to be honest with you. I just don't. Yeah. I think the I think the Clintons are just too powerful, and the the people who perpetrated the RussiaGate scam are are just too powerful because it's everybody. It's basically yeah. Everybody in Washington, with the exception of the Trump faction, which is not very big, and as you can see from Trump's own Trump's own administration, he he appointed people who actually you know repeatedly undermined his agenda. You know, he, when he tried to pull out of Syria, he was undermined, and so it's just, even though he's the president, he obviously has power. The real power was shown to him through RussiaGate. That's really who's in charge. The fact that you can get away with running a counterintelligence investigation of a sitting president on the basis that he's a Russian agent. And, and black can, him off Twitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's I mean, so, crazy. you know, it's that's that's actually who has real power. And um, yeah. so I don't, if I'm making a prediction for accountability for Russiagate, I don't think it's going to happen. I think at best they'll get some convictions for people like Michael Sussman and they'll get a slap on the wrist, but nothing in terms of the intelligence officials who took part and maybe i mean look hopefully durham will write a report that is honest and is thorough and hopefully he'll be allowed to release it i'm not convinced he will um everything you know the intelligence officials behind russiagate have been very successful at blocking information that makes them look bad there's a whole bunch of documents that that i know exist that have not come out um because Trump. Okay. When he, Trump. Don't when forget, he tri- you're talking to the fan of the Corvette report. So okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, <laughs> well, so I, yeah. But, but so but for those who don't know, Trump when he that's how we're going to be hearing about this in the future, though. That's what you're saying is we're only going to end up hearing about it uh, through basically uh, these leaked uh, or, or FOIA requests in the future. If they're allowed, if they're allowed to, if huh? they're allowed to see the light of day, yes. So if Durham's report is allowed to be released in full and you're scaring me with that because that's right we are looking at uh this this orwellian censorship right now they're scrubbing documents yeah and god damn it you i'm sorry i love you but you just roughed my day well i'm sorry (laughs) i'm sorry to do that no 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 it's okay (laughs) that's reality right it is uh heidi thanks a lot for the call thank thank you you. take care bye okay john hey aaron how you doing? I'm well. How are you? Good. I just want to say, first of all, I'm a big fan of yourself and Max and Ben and um, and also 
especially of your father. Your your father is an amazing man. I saw him speak at the Mayo Clinic uh, in Rochester, Minnesota, uh, about plant-based medicine. And uh, I read his book, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. Um, it was recommended by my therapist, and it's an amazing book. It just shows that your father is such an amazing man. I just want to say say that first of all. Hey, well, I agree. <laughs> I agree with you. And, you know, there was a question before about microdosing, and, um, you know, Gabor, my dad, would be a much better place to answer that than me. And because uh, that's, you know, that's that's a part of his uh, his focus is, is on psychedelics and its, its healing capacity for people. And, right, um, and he's also yeah. on the, uh, the the move to reform drug laws in the United yep. States that are desperately needed, and the the supposed liberals are nowhere on that. They're conservative in their um, ideas on drug yeah. Uh, yeah. the drug policy. Yeah, yeah, yep. Um, but if if I could, what I want to ask you is, you know, um, I I see that uh, one of your was it Ben or or um, Max that got. Uh, blocked by Nina Jankowitz, um, calling calling them uh, propaganda or misinformation or whatever, and uh, that was me. The, uh, oh, was it you? Oh, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so she had a problem with you using the term "color revolutions," and you know, if you could, I know it's the it's the orange revolution, right, in uh, Ukraine that happened in 2014. Yeah. Yeah, and what what other color revolutions were there? And also, you know, the, I'm obviously there was probably some involvement between the State Department and the uh, um, the clandestine services in the United States with those. And could you talk about um, the uh, Arab Spring and how much of that you think was? I mean, at least Syria, that wasn't a, a, a Arab Spring revolution. There, that was a, a, a coup there as well. Don't you think? Syria um, certainly was a um, it was a regime change operation. When exactly it was planned, I don't know. Um, what I do know is that in the midst of the Arab Spring, protests arose inside Syria, and there were two different varieties. One was heavily sectarian, and it was violent, and there were immediately attacks on Syrian forces. The other kind of protest was more Arab Spring. It was for democracy, you know, anti-corruption. But the dominant protests were the sectarian, violent ones. And that was militarized very quickly, and that was used by the U.S. and its allies for, for a regime change war. You know, who exactly was behind those initial protests, whether this was a plan for regime change from the start, or whether the U.S. and its allies just capitalized on what was already happening, I don't know. There is plenty of evidence that... Syria was in the crosshairs of the U.S. for a long time. Uh, Seymour Hersh has written about this, that under Bush there was a what was called internally a redirection where the Bush White House was going to basically work with Saudi Arabia to fund sectarian Sunni militias inside the Middle East to go after Iran and its allies, including Syria. And Syria was was marked for regime change um, during that period, and there are documents in, 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 in WikiLeaks from the U.S. Embassy in Damascus, you know, shortly before the, the dirty war in Syria broke out, basically reflecting that they were looking for ways to exploit Syria's vulnerabilities to destabilize Assad. So 
But what exactly the U.S. did, you know, at the very beginning, I don't know. What I do know is right. that well, weapons. Start, what I do know is I'm that sorry, weapons started going to Syria very quickly. Well, also there was the the not really testimony, but the stories that were told by uh, was it General Wesley Clark who said that he went he was in the Pentagon after nine eleven and they had that plan drawn up to overturn was exactly it five right. countries and yep. yeah he so said, yeah. you know. The, like Iraq was in the crosshairs, Syria, Libya. I mean, these, it's, it was plainly stated they wanted to get these guys. Later on, they made up the reasons to go after them. But first they decided to to uh, put them in the crosshairs, and then they used the propaganda machine to to sell them after the, you know, as they were coming up with them. Exactly right. Exactly right. And so, okay. and so, so, so what you're referring to, actually, so Nina Jankowitz blocking one of us, uh, and talking about color revolutions, that actually wasn't me. Uh, for me, that was something else. She said that I was implicated in a Russian disinformation operation, which is a slander oh, okay. lie. So, I mean, the irony of her being named to head a d- disinformation board is that she's spread libelous disinformation about others, including myself. But anyway. Um, well, her so, tone was in, in mocking the term color revolutions. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, it. A color revolutions happen with U.S. backing. It's in Eastern Europe. It's no secret. It happened in Georgia. It happened in Ukraine. It's openly discussed now that the, basically the, that the U.S. funded candidates and movements that it wanted to see installed. Victoria Nuland bragged about spending $5 billion in Ukraine before 2014. And so those are the color revolutions that that are being discussed. Is that When the U.S. exploits opposition movements to take out governments that it wants to remove. I mean, that's that's an old playbook. And so Nina Jankowicz, having been involved in some of those color revolutions, because, you know, she's worked for the U.S. government in various capacities, including in propaganda operations in Ukraine. I think she also even worked for Zelensky's re-election or, or Zelensky's election campaign. It's no surprise that she would take offense to that. Wow. Okay. Well, thanks for the talk. Thank you. Thanks for the call. All right. And we're going to have to wrap after this call so Fahim everyone's dream that's the name Fahim everyone's dream you are up hey Aaron hi hi uh, oh thanks for the perfect pronunciation this time so <laughs> uh, anyway uh, first of all uh, a great job on the uh, the heat with the CGT uh, on uh, CGT and uh, uh, talking uh, with uh, folks like Glenn Grant and all. I'm one of those weirdos who uh, every time I see a panel I'll just Google uh, folks and see which organizations they belong to, who's funding them, and so on and uh, so forth. And uh, it was just amazing to see uh, uh, the background of uh, his uh, uh, organization, Institute uh, for Statecraft's uh, funding of UK uh, uh, Ministry of Defense, Lithuanian Ministry of Defense, U.S. State Department, NATO, and Facebook. So I was like, wow, okay, that's it. one heck of a combination so um the question that i have is um on uh, i noticed that you're on uh telegram because I, I get like midnight uh, buzzes uh <laughs> from you and i'm like okay it's three o'clock in new york what is he doing up this time yes uh, but no nah. that no that is so, not me that is not me uh that, i do not control that account it's someone who basically takes my twitter and posts whatever i post there but oh, okay. i've um okay. I've 
you know, the one time they didn't post a tweet of mine was when I tweeted, whoever has this channel, please stop it. Please, please give me the channel. But they've obviously ignored that. So, um, oh, okay, okay. I was yeah. like, okay, is this guy having some like major sleep issues or what? <laughs> uh, so, but but either way, what I uh, wanted to uh, ask you uh, was um, like I've been checking out like different uh, channels on uh, Telegram to hear the other side of the uh, uh, conflict in uh, uh, between Russia and Ukraine. So, how uh, on you, your end, if you do check those out, then. How do you filter uh, those? Because normally what I do is I'll look uh, up the info and then uh, just Google it and see, if, okay, is this uh, uh, just uh, uh, propaganda on one side or uh, or what? And just uh, do a bunch of uh, uh, research just to uh, verify it. Uh, so just curious as uh, uh, how do you... Uh, uh, do it and which uh, ones have you come across that you're like, you know what, this is a interesting uh, uh, they've been posting a, uh, uh, a quite uh, uh, like yeah, yeah. relevant info so, but yeah. that's, uh, uh, that's all Well look, uh, here's a good example of this so I don't know if, if, if this happened on the channels you follow but um, a claim I kept hearing out of um, Mariupol was that Russia has captured you know, when they forced Azov to surrender, then the process, they've also captured a U.S. Army, a retired U.S. Army colonel. And I forgot the name uh, of the guy, but it's, it just struck me as like, it just didn't ring true. I just didn't believe it. And um, so I saw that claim being made, but there was never any evidence for it. There's always all, there, was all, there was always only the stock photo of some U.S. Army guy. And... Um, that's a good example of just where channels like this will put out stuff, but you cannot, you know, trust it unless you see really, really strong evidence. Like, and for some of these claims, I just haven't seen it. And lo and behold, I keep hearing about these retired Americans supposedly caught in Mariupol, but there's no photos of them. There's no evidence, nothing. So I just be, you know, I just advise people to be, to watch out for that when they're following these telegram channels and Twitter accounts. Um, but you know, like one thing you can do is like take an image and then just Google it to see if it's been posted before. If someone just basically reusing an old image to make a new claim about it, that's an easy way. And otherwise, you got you, like you have to just use your intuition whether something rings true or not, and whether it seems plausible, and whether there's any evidence to support it. You know, I don't have any magic formula. And uh, in terms of the channels that I follow, I'm just looking at my feed. So I follow Scott Ritter who I think is yep. pretty reliable. And I follow ASB Military News. ASB was a really big Twitter account, but it got banned. So uh, it made its way over to, to tell. And generally, I find them to be pretty reliable. And, uh, you know, yeah. And and there's a few others that... Um, yeah, so what I yeah. did uh, was to thanks to uh, Max and your uh, other uh, folks at Gray Zone when you all had uh, wrestled Bentley. And yeah. then I started following him. And then when he would like, uh, uh, I don't know what the term is when they say at so and so or, uh, or tag so and so. And I'll go and look at that. And then uh, someone else will tag them. And then I'll look at uh, that. And basically just, uh, and I've done the photo search searches uh, also just to, 
uh, see the, uh, that but but it's been uh, it, it's been refreshing to come across that because also like when i uh, w- uh, with all the talk about the azov battalion and all and some of the s- stuff that i've seen like with all the tattoos and all and i'm like oh my god uh, this is uh, <laughs> like really <laughs> way uh, out uh, there so but either way just wanted to say uh, uh, thanks and uh, it's it's been uh, quite refreshing to uh, at least be able to see something because it's been total like blackout it's been crazy blackout so but that's all um i um, uh, uh, just wanted to say thanks i appreciate that thank you Fahim. thank you okay. bye-bye bye and thanks everybody for tuning in i really appreciate you spending some time with me and thanks to everybody who asked questions i'll be back here tomorrow morning with katie halper after we do monday morning our useful idiot show on youtube that's at 10 o'clock a.m. Eastern Time on YouTube. And after that, we'll be here on Colin to take calls and chat. So that's it. Have a great rest of your day, everybody. Thank you for tuning in.